I'm reading a book right now on uh, audio. I do audio books uh, for some of my longer commutes. It's one of these cloak and dagger CIA types of books. And in the book, one spy says to another spy about another spy, do you trust him? You know, which in a spy book, nobody trusts anybody. So, but it, it got my mind going. That question, do, do, you, trust, do you trust him? Uh, you know, as I was listening to it, I was thinking, in, that's not a very helpful question. Um, it just didn't feel helpful to me, especially in the, in the story, because uh, it was such an, an untrustable environment. And so it kind of set my mind on a trajectory, and, you know, this is the bad side of audiobooks, is the audiobook keeps going, but your mind heads in the opposite direction. So my mind's heading off uh, down this path of trust, you know, what would have been a better question? How would I have, what's a more meaningful question that harvests some kind of thought or, or meaning? And this is where I ended up. I, I, I think a question that is better for me to ask, not so much do I trust a person, but what do I trust that person to do? That's the question. What do I trust, whatever person it is in whatever situation, what, what can I trust that person to do? What, what do I think is the predictable response of that person? You know, so if, I, if you're a coworker, you're working alongside of a coworker in a project, can you trust that person? Uh, what does that mean? But can you trust that person to share the workload? Can you trust that person to um, accurately report uh, kind of your role in the project? Can you trust that person to bow out at the very last minute, get busy, and leave you stuck holding the bag. Can you trust that person to... You know, what, what, what can you ex reasonably expect that person to do based upon everything you know about them? That feels more useful. And it's pretty much what Jonah says to God today. Jonah's going to say... I knew you were going to do this. So he says to the Lord. Because Jonah, the Lord had come to Jonah in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah said, uh, the Lord said to Jonah, I rise up and go to Nineveh, this great and terrible city, and call out against it. Right? And Jonah immediately rebelled from the Lord and went as far in the opposite direction as he could. The Lord grabbed Jonah back, brought him back, and said the same thing. Right? Through the belly of the fish, spits him back out on dry land and says, go to, go to Nineveh and speak out against her. So Jonah goes to Nineveh. He declares uh, 40 days and the city will be overthrown to this great city. There's massive repentance from the greatest to the least, both man and beast. Just widespread repentance in Nineveh. When the Lord sees it, he relents of his judgment. In other words, he gives them pardon or mercy. And when that happens, Jonah is furious. This is what it says in chapter 4, verse 1. Speaking of the relenting of the Lord, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The Hebrew is, it was an evil to Jonah with a great evil, is the way it's literally being expressed. 
that God relenting of his judgment of Nineveh infuriates Jonah against the Lord. At least it infuriates Jonah. And then when the Lord approaches Jonah, Jonah's really mad. In a sense, in the story of Jonah, the fish is not the climax. This is the climax of the story of Jonah, right here. This is the twist. If you were just a first-time virgin reader to this story, this is, I mean, as though you haven't been taken kind of around a lot of surprises, this is the surprise to end all surprises, in a, in a way of uh, Nineveh repenting is a surprise, God relenting is a surprise, but Jonah being furious about it is, uh, is a remarkable surprise. Some, uh, one scholar uh, has chosen to call him a religious monster. That's, that's the way he... It's the name he gave for Jonah, is the religious monster. Just because of his monstrous way of hating what God has just done. Why exactly Jonah's upset? I don't know why exactly. I imagine it's some, something like, something like this. That Jonah can appreciate a God who shows mercy, uh, but uh, that mercy is reserved for the Jews. I mean, the Jews are the chosen people. The Jews are the promised people. What is God doing doling out mercy to these rebellious pagan heathens of a distant land who don't worship him? Or maybe it's a little bit of... uh, Jonah's all about God giving mercy to the people that Jonah deems worthy of mercy. You know, that's, I think, a little bit more of a human sentiment is we, we, we appreciate God as merciful to us. We appreciate God would, if God would be merciful to those that whom we love. We're glad that God's merciful to others, but there's some, there are some that we certainly do not want the Lord to be merciful to, at least in the way we kind of subconsciously go about life. There's some that we have put in the category of we wish they were simply subjects of judgment and justice. It's worth pointing out. I mean, the Ninevites were some wicked and terrible people, and it's worth pointing out that about 50 years after Jonah dies, the Ninevites show up and destroy Israel in a vicious and ruthless way. I mean, there's a sense, you could almost imagine from heaven that Jonah's doing this, a double take on this, going, this is exactly what I said was going to happen. The very people who through my faithful service to you have been saved were the very instruments by which you destroyed my people. I mean, so that it kind of gives you a sense of how he might have regarded the Ninevites at the time as, as maybe an impending threat, as certainly people who were... Uh, deserving rather of justice and not of mercy. Whatever it is, it it displeases this kind of religious monster exceedingly. And in verse 2 it says he prays, which is an interesting thought all by itself. Let me just read the second verse. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's a detail that comes out that in the beginning of the story, we're not given any insight to. He says, didn't I say this to you earlier? When I was in my own country. The the beginning of the story gives you the clear impression. Uh, It just wants to show the, the great speed at which Jonah disobeys and disregards the Lord. And so the Lord says, go to Nineveh, and he gets up and goes to Tarshish. That's just the speed at which the story starts. But you hear back now, Jonah's saying, I told you this was going to happen. When I was way back at home, I said this was going to happen. This is the entire reason I did not come here. And then he grabs a liturgical statement from Scripture, something that you've probably heard before, but he almost throws it in the face of God. I knew you were merciful, abounding in love, slow to anger. I mean, that's his spirit. He's throwing into the face of God these attributes of God, gracious God, merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in love, steadfast. This little phraseology uh, here, this merciful, slow to anger, gracious, this area is, um, whether the storyteller is using it to describe or whether Jonah actually said it, the, 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 it is, it's essentially liturgy of the Old Testament. You'll find this phraseology said in in the Torah, it's said in the Psalms, it's said in the prophets, it's, it's kind of repeated. It's, it's a, a large arc description of God. In fact, the first person to say it is the Lord himself. There's great irony, okay? There's massive irony that this is a prayer, which we'll deal with in a second. But inside of this prayer... There's irony that Jonah's throwing this back in the face of the Lord because when the Lord first said this, it was, it was Exodus chapter 34, which was when the Israelites made the golden calf while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments. And when the Lord saw it, you know, the, the, plate, the, the Ten Commandments were smashed and the Lord said, listen, it's best if we just separate ourselves from one another. You go your way, I'll go mine. And the Israelites, they, they pleaded for mercy They begged for mercy. They repented, and the Lord heard them, heard Moses' supplication, turned back to his people, and said this about himself at that very moment. So Jonas using the words of God at a time when the Israelites were undeserving, but he's throwing it in God's face just because he gave it to the Ninevites. Essentially what Jonah's doing is saying, I trusted you would do this. this I knew you were going to do this. Which I find very interesting. I find it interesting that Jonah is overwhelmingly confident in a merciful God. I mean, you think about it. Think of all... First of all, think about what Discovery Channel would have you think about the Old Testament. Or what um, uh, 
those around you who don't have much God, but they have an opinion about the Old Testament God. Imagine what they would say about the God of the Old Testament, as though there is such a thing as a different God. The false dichotomy. I like Jesus. I don't really get the God of the Old Testament, right? Like, to even do that, which is such a common, uh, such a common disposition in our day and time. When we do that, when we create this false dichotomy of, well, there's the Jesus who has love and mercy, but there's the Old Testament God, what are we saying? Think about the, the fact that Jonah is overwhelmingly confident that God is going to show Nineveh mercy. What does that say about God? I mean, Jonah's not overwhelmingly confident that God is going to give Jonah mercy, a prophet of the Most High God. Jonah's not overwhelmingly confident that God is going to give the Israelites mercy because they're his covenant people. Jonah is overwhelmingly confident that God is going to give the Ninevites mercy. What does that say? about, I mean, we need to understand the Old Testament through the eyes and hearts and minds of the people of the Old Testament. What does that say about the way the people of the Old Testament understood the Lord? I would say this. To them, God is not some smiter of the human. He's not an angry-eyed, long-bearded, lightning-bolt-throwing God. If he was, certainly Nineveh would get it. You cannot find a better nominee for judgment than Nineveh. This is what it says. Just listen, look at this passage in Joel. Joel is a prophet. We don't know exactly when he spoke, but he's, he's speaking to Israel. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rent your hearts and not your garments. That's a good line, isn't it? God wants your heart to break on the inside, not just the appearance. Return to the Lord your God, for he is, does this sound familiar? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. It might as well be, it might as well be Jonah. An entirely different prophet from an entirely different time saying almost exactly the same thing. Jeremiah says almost exactly the same thing. The psalmist says almost exactly the same thing. Moses appeals to the Lord after the golden calf because he knows God is merciful. It seems to me that the Old Testament God gets a major bum rap because the, ma- the characters of the Old Testament, if they know anything about God, it's that they can turn to God and receive mercy. I guess I'm saying if God was, and I'm saying this to, especially to the ears and the hearts here who say things like, you know, I, if God only knew what I did, then he wouldn't like me. Or I just don't know if, if, if I can keep asking for forgiveness here, like when is God going to run out of grace? Or, you know, I know God, I know God came for all the other people in this room who are all fixed and pretty and happy, but God, how could God have saved me? I'm saying this to you, like, Do you see what the prophets of the Old Testament see as God's M.O.? God's M.O. is 
mercy to people who do not deserve it. So much so that Jonah knows it from the very outset. Jonah knows, I'm going to go to the most wicked city in my known existence. I'm going to tell them about the judgment of God, but I know what God's going to do. God is going to show them mercy. I mean, Jesus is a particular man, but he's not peculiar from the Father. He is the same. I really think the Old Testament is not, the, is not a story of a judge, a wrath-bringing, justice-oriented. He cares about evil. <laughs> he cares about evil. He is going to make things right. He is just, but I'm saying I don't think the Old Testament is really a testimony of a lightning bolt throwing God as much as it is a testimony of a mercy drunk people who have forgotten what it means to be repentant. That's the story of the Old Testament. It's people who receive so much mercy, they take it for granted. Receive so much blessing, they take it for granted to the point where God can no longer tell them that what's right and what's wrong that's really the testimony of the Old Testament. Anyway, so he's praying. This is his opening prayer. Um, most people would say, like, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This was Jonah's opener. And then this is his ask. Look at verse 3. This is what he's asking in prayer. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Amen. Does, does that sound familiar to you, by the way? If, you know, those of you who kind of grew up around some Bible stories, you ever remember any other story where a prophet begs the Lord just to take his life? Elijah? Yeah. Sounds very Elijah. I think the writer of this story, I, whether it's Jonah writing his own story or someone writing Jonah's story, they are enjoying placing him in irony against the great prophets of his time. And he's the, he is the ironic opposite of Elijah. Elijah preaches this great revival to his people, and no one, it's, it fails. It's in the failure of his people to be repentant that Elijah despairs into his life. Jonah, 40 days and the city's going to be overturned. The whole city repents, and he says, this is terrible. Like, he's the, he's the opposite of Elijah. You even see this with Moses. I mean, it, the very first words about God being merciful and kind, I mean, to exhume that out of the testimony of God and Moses. God said that to Moses. You have this idea of Moses pleading to the Lord for God's mercy. Moses begging the Lord, Lord, it's through you that we are distinct and particular. That's where he says that, Lord, show us mercy, please. And the Lord gives him mercy. And here you have the, the anti-Moses. I knew you were merciful. Rats. But, but what maybe I think I want to... I know we're going slow here. I know there's a, a lot of other verses, but I do want us to point... I do want us to point our hearts to the fact that Jonah is praying this and the Lord is not striking him dead. Right? Can you believe he prayed this? 
I mean, God responds. Verse 4. Do you well, do well to be angry? That's essentially like, Jonah, you really feel justified in your anger? That's God's response to this prayer. A question. Oh, you can say this to God. <clears throat> I have been, uh, I've been captured and convicted about this. I mean, maybe the theme of this morning is prayer, right? This week I was at, I went to see the movie War Room. The, it's, it's up at Regal Cinema. It's about prayer. It's uh, by the people who made Facing the Giants and those sorts of things. It's a good movie. Pushing this idea, once again, convicting of this idea of prayer, and I see this this prayer, right, from this religious monster is, oh, how do you, part of me goes, how can he do this? Then I'm dealing with the fact of at least he's praying. I mean, I will say this, God seems to have a great capacity for prayerful confrontation. I think, and I, I could be wrong here, but as I've surveyed in my mind the landscape of Scripture, I cannot find a time where someone was praying to the Lord and the Lord just ended it. That's had enough? Smite. Never did that. I was mentioning this in a Bible study. Of, it seems, it's, I was saying it seems to me that God endures massive prayerful confrontation. I mean, you read the Psalms. How many of the Psalms are pointing a finger at God in some at least sideways way? Habakkuk. Have you ever read Habakkuk? The, the, the notations or the headings of Habakkuk are his first complaint, his second complaint, and his third complaint. Have you ever read Jeremiah? I mean, Jeremiah has a, a love-hate relationship with God. It seems that God has this huge capacity to receive confrontation from his children. He may admonish them, but I cannot recall that he smites them. I mean, I'm not encouraging you to do this. So this is not advice to go yell at the Lord. But I will say this. I would encourage you to confront God in your honesty rather than walk away and not pray which I think is our modus operandi. I think when we get to a place where we're like, he, he is just like that, or why didn't he save this person, or why didn't he do that, or what it is, we give God the silent treatment. Like our answer is, well, we're just done with God. And I see God dealing with that far more harshly than those who confront the Lord. At least, if you're going to do this, say, well, you, Lord, you gave mercy to Jonah, so I have something to say, you know? I mean, but I'm just saying, I think there's, God has a great space. It's just another way that he's merciful. God has this great space to receive you as you are in prayer for you to, with your mouth, open it up and say how you're feeling to the Lord. You know, I find this is why I need to, when I need to pray best, I need to pray by myself because I need to pray out loud and I need to not worry about what other people are going to think about what I say because when it's silent in my mind, when my prayers are silent, they, it's like I'm speed reading and I'm not catching myself on the heresy that comes out. When I put it into sound, 
then I, that's when I realize how heretical I can be. And then the Lord hears it, and we have to deal with it. It's, I'm encouraging you not to pray like Jonah, but even Jonah could pray. Don't just silently abandon God. Okay. Well, anyway, Jonah gives this terrible, religiously monstrous prayer to which the Lord responds with this question. You really feel justified in your anger? And let me just read. I'm going to read from four all the way through at least the first half of nine. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? I want to stop there. By the way, do you notice verse 4? He asks a question that Jonah doesn't answer. (laughs) And in verse 9, he repeats the question. Same question, just for the plant. I mean, Jonah prayed to the Lord. The Lord asked the question that really mattered, to which I, I get the impression Jonah kind of huffed off. For whatever reason, the writer of the story wants you to know the conversation ended on that question. And then the transi- he transitions to what did Jonah do? And it says, Jonah went out of the city to see what was going to happen to the city. The picture I have, because there's some sequencing here, the picture I have is somewhere along in the 40 days of Jonah's preaching or how his duration of preaching, you know, 40 days before Nineveh will be overthrown, 39 days. At some point in that, Jonah got the clear knowledge, however it works for a prophet, the clear awareness from God that God was not going to destroy the city. Let's say 10 days to go, five, I don't know, two days to go. Something happened where Jonah knew. Jonah's conversation with God in verses 1 to 4 is, seems to be in front of the deadline. Okay? And then he has this question, this, this conversation, ends on this question that he doesn't want to answer, and he heads out of the city, sets up his little camp, his little hut, his little stick hut, that's what it was, a, the Festival of Tabernacles, it's the same word here, this little booth with sticks and, you know, you can imagine something that gives partial covering from the shade, but there's no big leaves, it's the desert, so it's just kind of sticks to provide shade to see what, in fact, was going to happen to the city. He's sitting off kind of the best seat in the house, just in case, maybe. Who knows? Maybe Jonah will be lucky and God isn't merciful. So he's sitting in this little hut, 
the Lord makes this plant grow up over him. Then the Lord appoints the worm to attack the plant. And the Lord calls in this great east wind, this hot wind. I wonder, my, just my curiosity is, is this hot wind a way of telling the Ninevites you barely escaped? I don't know. By the way, the plant dies, the wind comes, and Jonah does this very same thing he did the other day, which he pleads to the Lord, he prays to the Lord, Lord, take my life. To which the Lord asks the very same question. You do well to be angry for the plant? Here's what Jonah says. Let me just pick up in nine. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This is what's happening. I mean, the Lord is drawing his attention. The Lord has placed Jonah in such a way as to have to have to deal with the issue. So the Lord says to Jonah, you pity the plant, don't you? Like, you really feel you're justified in grieving for the loss of this plant? I mean, you have no stake in the plant at all. You didn't do anything for the plant. You didn't plant it. You didn't labor for it. It's only been there one day. It came and went in a day. And yet you grieve its loss. You wish life for it. You would that it would not have perished. And God says, can I be that way? Can I be that way about Nineveh? Like all, all the grief and pity you would have for this plant, can I just be that way for Nineveh? because I did plant them. And I did labor for them. And you might not know them, but I know them. They don't even know the right, they don't, they don't know right hand from their left. They're lost and confused. Can I, can I pity my plant Nineveh? You know, in this whole story, all we have seen is a merciful God. A story that would have started with, here's the smiter, he's going to deal with Nineveh. The truth is, all we saw was a merciful God. Why did God send a prophet to Nineveh in the first place? Because of his mercy. Why did God go after Jonah? Because of his mercy. Why did God choose not to destroy Nineveh, but to spit him out on the shore and give him a second chance? Because of his mercy. Why was the word preached to the Ninevites? Because of his mercy. Why did he relent when they repented? Because of his mercy. Why did God give Jonah this conversation and patiently endure this confrontational prayer? Because of his mercy. Everywhere you look in the story, it's the mercy of God. The truth is, nobody died in this entire story but a plant. The plant is the only fatality. Maybe we should say this. 
the plant and the Son of God are the only fatalities in this story. Because he has so much mercy. There are certainly people we do not love. There are certainly people that I know you have a right to be angry with. I know you have a right not to forgive them. I know that they did something terrible. And I know in your mind they do not deserve the mercy of God, but they are not your plant. Does he have the right to care for the things that he has made and watered and labors to grow? Because chances are they don't know their right hand from their left. What can you trust God to do? Let's pray, Lord. Father, I thank you that you did not take someone's opinion as to what you ought to do with me. And I'm grateful that you don't come to come to man to get our wisdom on who ought to receive mercy and who ought to receive justice. Lord, we pray in the Spirit, defy our wisdom. Baffle us with your grace, Lord. Lord, I thank you this morning for your testimony in Jonah, the way that you've shown uh, how you send people uh, to, to speak your truth to people who are lost the way you've shown how you rescue your children who are running away from you, how you seek them out, how you bring them to a place, you bring them to a deep place where they can understand you, how you give them second chances and you don't rub their face into yesterday, how you hear even the most primitive fashion and form of repentance, Lord, and you relent because you're gracious and you're merciful. Father, and I pray that we would hear this as your, as your children. I pray that if there were those here who did not grow up, that idea, whether it's the idea of a father who loves them is alien to them, Lord, or the idea of a God who's merciful is alien to them, or an idea of a God who cares enough about their wrongdoing so as to confront them and call them to righteousness, Lord, I pray they would hear it and meet this Lord, meet you, and know your mercy. Because it's what we can trust you to do. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.